Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, old risks are alive and well. Your common culprits like trade and slowing global growth. But there's one new one to now throw into the mix, the prospects for presidential impeachment. What, if anything at all, does this mean for markets? And if you only came here to hear the craziest things that happened in markets this week, don't worry. We will not disappoint. Sarah, I'll give you one hint on what my craziest thing is. We'll take it. Switzerland. Switzerland. All All right. right. I guess we'll have to wait till the end of the show. Have to to wait till the end of the show. (laughs) Like usual. And as always, remember, we have our very own Bloomberg podcast hotline. Give us a call. Ask us a question, leave us a message saying the craziest things that you guys have seen in markets, and maybe we'll even play your message on the show. That number is 646-324-3490. So, Sarah, I have to say, uh, I just met our first guest today uh, for the first time, but I like him already, and I'll tell you why, because I was reading the notes he sent over with sort of the thought, his thoughts on the market, Okay, and they jibe with my own very... Very much. There's a lot of lot of common ideas there. You love to hear your own ideas. I'm not above, <laughs> I'm not above a little confirmation bias at all. <laughs> but he's the chief market strategist at Natixis. He's also the chair of the steering committee for the Active Managers Council. So we expect him to be very active in this podcast. <laughs> and uh, he's right about everything, uh, as we've, we've already said. Clearly, and, he's uh, right about everything. <laughs> his name is Dave Lafferty. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate the confirmation bias. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little confirmation Pat yourself bias. on the back. Right. Our other guests, I kind of like him, too, even though I rarely agree kind with of. him. Yeah. He is a cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. He is, I would call him the Cal Ripken of finance Twitter. I might have to explain that explain one. That explain that one. Explain it for the kids. Uh, it it for means kids. he shows up every day swinging. He shows up every day swinging. And as we just discovered, he's an intermittent faster. Luke Kawa, tell us about that. I mean, I, I think it's pretty necessary. If you can, you can eat whatever the heck you want for eight hours a day and then do nothing for the other sixteen. I think uh, it's it's really smart. It's working. Except you know? I can tell you, I sit next to Luke, and I can sure tell you he does not eat whatever he wants for the other sixteen hours of the day. I hey, you know. <laughs> Some of us weren't fitting into suits we bought, you know, a year ago, and now we do again. So, you know, <laughs> it worked out well. <laughs> I, I fast for about 20 minutes at a time. That counts, right? That counts. Yeah, you, know, you, you have to raise a number of daughters, though, I'm sure, you know, that's uh, <laughs> and a, a labradoodle. Well, a lot of calorie burning. And right? a dog. And a dog. Don't forget about that one. So, Dave, let's start with you. Um, obviously, the big story of the week is Nancy Pelosi uh, sort of fi- finally pulling the trigger on the impeachment inquiry of President Donald Trump. Um, we saw a little bit of volatility around the announcement and before it as, as the rumors started swirling. Walk us through how you're thinking about this. Is this a risk that sort of the average investor has to worry about in the long term? or even the short term, uh, how are you thinking about impeachment? 
Well, I think when you bring up the horizon, that is the right way to think about it. And when I think in the near term, it doesn't strike me as something that's very tradable. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of he said, she said. Uh, We don't know what we don't know at this point. We don't know what the revelations will be. So I think it's really tough to kind of trade around this. Uh, I I do think that in the long run, uh, this is really setting up the key debate around the 2020 election. And I think it's pretty clear that Speaker Pelosi has kind of been dragged kicking and screaming into this. And I think she has some pretty good instincts Uh, The the Democrats can either make a really compelling, concise and coherent argument and really put the pressure on the president, or they could present a very mixed and muddled and confused uh, presentation to the American public and really help out the president's chances. So if I was a Democratic strategist, I wouldn't be hiring lawyers. I'd be hiring a PR firm because the they need to wrap this up in a real good soundbite, a real good bumper sticker. And then I think it has real market implications going into the election. But right now it feels like uh, a lot of uh, much ado about nothing. I know you guys covered some Shakespeare on last week's uh, podcast. So, We've got a listener. Uh, like, like, like most people uh, who have never read it, I love to quote Shakespeare. So, <laughs> so much ado about nothing in the meantime. We could do the Macbeth full of sound and fury signifying nothing, too, if we want. Oh, to, that right? is a good yeah. one for the moment. I think that was last week. Luke, we've heard, I've heard many times from investors this past week that it's not about politics. It's about policies. So when we talk about what this could mean for markets when it comes to impeachment, or at least the proceedings um, and the sound and fury of it, is where it really matters what it does for actual policies like trade or other policies in that matter? Yeah, I I would certainly think so. And I'd agree. And that's why it's interesting to see market moves just based on, you know, I'm refreshing predict it like every other <laughs> crazy person in markets because they predicted and uh, and S&P 500 futures were for a point in time this week. They were moving in tandem perfectly. What's been interesting throughout this, though, is that even as the odds of just impeachment by the House have certainly gone up this week, you haven't seen a corresponding decline in online prediction markets about Donald Trump's chances of winning the 2020 elections. That's a big part of policy. So what is a policy that could change and still not have those odds change? Certainly trade, I think, would be would be the top one. And in talking with people about, you know, market reactions to these uh, these kind of political hijinks we've had, it seems everyone wants to treat it as potential buying opportunity. And the part of the thinking here is, well, if you know Trump's engaged in full out war against the Democrats, then, you know, it's going to be harder to fight a two front war really aggressively there with China. He might have to play more to his Republican base, make sure a lot of senators stay on his side. And, you know, the Republican senators, although they have not been a huge check on the president on trade, they certainly do not uh, share all of his hawkish leanings on that subject. Uh, Dave, I was listening to a TV interview you did on on this subject, and you brought up the notion of game theory. And I got to say, whenever I hear a financial type start talking about game theory, I'm like, all right, okay, Sun Tzu, take it easy there. (laughs) But but I know you have to do it. Um, The problem, obviously, is that the star of this game is Donald Trump, who plays, what's the word for it, Sarah, an unorthodox game? Unorthodox is fair. We'll go with that. Yeah. Um, So... Everyone's doing sort of a, a similar mental exercise on game theory, but how, how confident can you be um, in what you, you conclude uh, when you think about the trade tensions? It's, it's a great point. Not very confident. The point that I was trying to make was th- there, there's been a view that we've heard that basically 
this will kind of impede the timeline, that all this impeachment talk will kind of push, push policy out into the future. There won't be have enough, enough time to get any of this done. And all I was sort of bringing up was you also have to think about what the reaction function is. That's sort of the link to game theory. And what I'm thinking about there is how do the Chinese react to this? Is this a chance for them to, uh, do they see the president as weak and more willing to cut a deal? So maybe they offer an olive branch. So what I was really getting at was kind of the reaction function. I don't think we can be a, we can have confidence in any outcome. I think that is kind of the underlying message of the entire Trump presidency. Uh, is don't don't bank on anything. But I do think it's not simply uh, as easy as saying, well, this is going to delay everything. It's going to make, po- as Luke was saying, it has all kinds of policy implications. Maybe these will, will get delayed. The other side of this coin is it might give an opportunity for some people to step in. We did get a trade deal this week with Japan. It kind of got glossed over, lost in the fray. However, we still have not really seen much movement on the USMCA. Is there anything that we can take away from other trade deals that are moving through the system to get a sense of what might be coming with China? Uh, I don't know. I really think these all progress at their own pace. I, I have had for a long time now very limited expectations around some type of grand bargain between the U.S. and China. I, I think what the U.S. ultimately wants is for the Chinese not to be China. Uh, we, we sort of we're asking them to do something uh, that really isn't in their nature. And I think that was always going to make a really grand bargain. Do you mean when it comes to IP theft, writing into law? Uh, yes. Uh, domestic subsidies, mm-hmm. industry champions, all of those things that they really feel are inherent to their industrial policy. It's it's uh, uh, they might they might give us uh you know, they might buy some more soybeans from us, but I don't think they're going to change who they fundamentally are. That's a bridge too far for me. Uh, the way I've always thought about it is the uh, the impact of this deal will be proportional to how long it takes to get done. Mm-hmm. The faster it gets done, the less it really means. I wanted to talk about sort of what ground zero of the trade war seems to be, and it's, it's manufacturing. Uh, and I was going to read uh, from, from one of your notes. Uh, Globally, manufacturing is probably in recession, but we are watching for signs that it may spill over into broader consumption trends. It hasn't happened yet. This is a theme we've talked about a few times on this show, um, this concern of when do we start to see this manufacturing weakness uh, bleed into the consumer space. You know, we did see the conference board's consumer confidence index take a pretty big dip uh, this week. Granted, still at a very elevated level. Expectations, uh, an even bigger dip. Again, still elevated level. Um, I was reading a note from uh, Nick Collis, who we, we had on the show, and he he finds the craziest stats. But he was talking about Halloween consumption and how the National Retail Federation is expecting a dip in Halloween purchases and people actually, believe it or not, blaming it on the, the trade war. I mean, uh, is this enough to start worrying about the consumer? Obviously, the job market's still strong. But where where would you look for to see that sort of infection into the consumer space? Well, from my standpoint, it's really about how long it takes. And, and sort of coming back to your point, if you look at the size of the U.S. external sector, you know, the, the export sector is about 10, 12 percent of the U.S. economy. Manufacturing sector is something like a, just under under 20 it, in isolation, those don't seem big enough to bring down the U.S. economy. But it is the spillover effects. How long until the the lockup in trade and supply chains spills over into manufacturing? Well, we're seeing it. How long until the manufacturing slowdown spills over into 
now they, you know, that, that person that works on the factory floor isn't going out to dinner. Now we've got waiters and waitresses being laid off. When does this begin to hit the consumption side? When does it really, in my mind, hit sort of labor and wage trends? We don't see that yet. But at the front end of some of the labor markets, we don't see it in, say, the weekly jobless claims, which have remained very strong. But we do see it in some of the survey data where uh, jobs hard to get minus easy to get. uh, That's beginning to deteriorate. The employment components of some of the surveys are beginning to deteriorate. So we're not in the recession camp. We don't see a ton of spillover, but we might be at the very front tip of that iceberg. And so that's what we're kind of keeping an eye on. That weekly jobless claims number to me is kind of the thing I look for first uh, on Thursday mornings. I think there's kind of two interesting points to piggyback off of that in terms of the the data and the divide between hard and soft data or almost at the diametrically opposite position that we were at the start of the Trump presidency when it's essentially consumer confidence gauges, CEO confidence gauges were absolutely shooting up and the hard data didn't match. If you actually look at what U.S. industrial production is doing and the deceleration, which it's been real, uh, it's nowhere near the level of deceleration and contraction you would assume is happening if you just looked at ISM. And then to kind of use well, what barometer could we use to maybe see when we'd get the spillover from manufacturing to services? I I think Dave made a great point. Look at the size of the U.S. external sector. Why not look at economies that have a much bigger manufacturing and external sector and see when it spills over there? Because it's not reasonable to suggest it's really going to hit U.S. consumers before it materially hits European consumers, in particular Germany. It seems like we're constantly talking about these headwinds, either sentiment deteriorating, or you think about the oil spike, Middle East tensions, over caused by Iran. Also, we've talked about slowing economic growth overseas, particularly this week. We saw weaker economic data out of Europe. Now you're dealing with all this impeachment talk. Trade continues. But the market is still near its record highs. I mean, the market's been very resilient. Do you get the sense that that's actually the tone from underlying investors, that people feel good right now? Or do people still feel pretty downtrodden? And that means there's room to move further. Well, I think, again, coming back to the sentiment indicators, I do feel like they've weakened, and I think people are very worried. I think even people that don't understand or even know what an inverted yield curve are could still stop you on the street and ask you what this means for their 401k. So I I do think sentiment has has clearly uh, deteriorated in in that sense. I think more important, though, is what are the underlying trends? And I think this really has people concerned because, because frankly, for all the news that's been buffeting the stock market, what we aren't talking a lot about are the earnings trends, mm-hmm. which frankly haven't been that great. It's been positive, but they've been the, the forward earnings estimates have been gradually deteriorating for about three or four quarters now. And valuations, which we don't see as, as exorbitant, but they're certainly not cheap. So all this stuff is buffeting the equity markets, but it's buffeting it in a context where those two kind of drivers of equity returns margin expansion or contraction in the underlying earnings, neither of those variables is really in the favor right now of equity holders. So I I think you need to sort of look underneath the waves and everything that's happening to see kind of those underlying trends. And they're stable, but they're not great.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One really interesting point you brought up uh, in your notes was, uh, and I'm quoting you here, you say, uh, we think central banks have run out of real ammunition. Uh, and you talk about the credit impulse, which, and correct me if I'm bungling this definition, but it's basically the year-over-year growth in credit uh, as a percentage of growth in, in GDP. And it's really been pinned at a, a very low level. The trend of it seems to just have flatlined uh, and, and gone lower uh, over the years, despite the Fed returning to an easing posture. What do you think is behind that? So what you described is an even better definition of the credit impulse than what I would think. I, I, I actually think of it much Confirmation more Confirmation bias. <laughs> I, I see his head getting better. I, yeah, I, I know I like this guy for some reason. For, for, for me, the credit impulse is just the, the, uh, the impetus to want to take on more debt as interest rates get lower. So how much credit will really be sort of uh, demanded uh, as rates go lower? And so the point that I was really making is, you know, when interest rates go from 4% to 2%, CEOs say, hey, I can fund that new plant. Uh, I can buy that new software. Maybe I can hire some more workers. But when rates are pretty close to zero in some parts of the world, if you haven't gone out and borrowed yet, as you get closer to the zero bound, does lowering interest rates really create this new demand for credit? That was really what I was getting at. And so I think the idea, you know, we, we've heard this constantly, and, and this is one of the narratives I've pushed back on for about a year and a half now, was the idea that more accommodative central banks would somehow be good for the stock market. I don't necessarily think it's bad, but I think we've lost more credit impulse. And I actually think we're reaching a point where uh, the more accommodative and the more frantic this begins to look, super accommodative policy at 10 years on now serves to undermine investor and consumer confidence more than it does to instill it. And those are the two reasons why uh, I'm a little bit hesitant about thinking. I certainly think, hey, if you take rates lower and do a bunch of QE, yeah, at the margin, we get some stimulus. I just don't think it looks anything like it did in previous episodes of this super accommodative policy. Sticking with the topic of debt, I want to get your take on this phenomenon that we've been seeing. So Goldman Sachs has these two different baskets of stocks. One has stocks that are extremely highly levered. The other has stocks that have extremely strong and healthy balance sheets. And since June, we've actually seen this sudden outperformance of these highly levered stocks. So right before the Fed cut interest rates to you, when you see these stocks that might be seen as low quality stocks doing better, I should say, uh, than your higher quality, uh, strong balance sheet companies. Is that sustainable or does it seem more like a head fake? It Well, look, I think it's probably unsustainable in the sense that I, we're still going to have an economic cycle. And ultimately, when the credit cycle turns, those names are going to get punished the most. Mm-hmm. I do think that as you take interest rates lower and lower, the natural compounding 
companies that aren't as strong financially, but they have sort of this growth bent that that growth is is further out there into the future. You know, uh, the unicorns have all been kind of taking it on the chin in recent weeks. Uh, the idea that you're not discounting those cash flows as much gives these levered companies more leeway. I think investors give them a little bit more leeway. But Sarah, that can't last forever. Right. Ultimately, <laughs> we don't know when the credit cycle will begin to bite, but it will come back at some point. So no, it can't last forever. And it's probably important to note that this isn't necessarily being validated by the bond market right now. For instance, the you know the riskiest credits, triple C's, they've been underperforming in high yield, uh, you know, a clear laggard this year, but especially in the last few weeks. So credit's supposed to be the smart money and those guys are going, hey, like uh, maybe you're just reevaluating the upside prospects and the equity, but we aren't necessarily uh, very convinced here as the ones first in the uh, first in the recoup line. Uh, Luke, you write a lot about options in the volatility market, and we were talking a little bit earlier uh, about it. And you were saying, yeah, there's, it, there's just really nothing to talk about there. It, there's this heightened uncertainity with the impeachment and the trade tensions. The VIX is still kind of where it's been, fifteen, sixteen. You know, I was looking at the skew, the option skew on the, the uh, spy ETF, uh, a little elevated, not really anything to write home about. Is that surprising to you? Um, and uh, how would you, you know, how would you explain that given uh, the scary headlines floating around? So the the fun thing about looking at skew now is it's been sticky high for a while. Just looking at put call skew out of the money, and this is because just how, especially in, and this is especially acute for the S and P five hundred. Just very like market structure has mattered a ton, and what we have more and more, especially as we're in a very choppy range bound market, is institutional call overwriting. You know, you own the stock, then you sell the you know five percent out of the money call to pr- collect some premium along the way. So that's something that's going to. Keep Keep a lid on the implied volatility of calls relative to puts. That's been a pretty steady uh, dynamic. What you have then on the other side is look at wings pricing. So look at essentially the implied volatility of way out of the money calls or puts versus closer to the money stuff. And that's where you see, and I think this is also a reflection of that we've been trading in a range. People are essentially pricing in, well, we're trading in a range. I'm going to protect against the next 5%, not the next 10% because that's the way the market's been lately. So I think it's really a market structure story why options have been as uh, not exciting as you might expect them to be in this instance. But uh, you know, it, it makes sense when you put these pieces together. Dave, spinning up forwards, I like how you described something earlier. You said you need to look underneath the wave. So look underneath the headline risks and look at what the economy is actually doing, the fundamentals, the corporate profits. How much of a risk do earnings downgrades, revisions to the downside actually present going forwards? I mean, sure, we always see this trend at the end of the year where you start to see companies guide lower for 2020, but we're still expecting double digit at 10% growth for 2020. So is it possible that markets or investors will be taken by surprise should this come? Uh, that's actually what I think will happen. I don't think they'll be taken by surprise. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be much more gradual than that. So when we look at kind of the year-over-year numbers for the S&P, it looks like plus two to plus four for calendar year 2019. As you mentioned, 10% is about the bottom-up estimate for next year, and another 10%. This strikes me as uh, a bit optimistic. And for me, the basic math is when you take companies, you know, these these 
mega cap companies, uh, multinational companies, uh, generally in aggregate, I don't see how they grow top line revenue growth significantly faster than nominal global growth. Remember, revenue and earnings is a nominal concept. So nominal global growth is probably in the 5% neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We're probably growing at 3% real and call it 2% inflation. So to me, top line revenue growth is probably 5 or 6%. Then you have to look at profit margins. You can grow earnings much faster than the bottom line if margins are expanding. But if margins are already fairly high, so I don't see how we translate relatively slow top-line revenue growth into significantly higher bottom-line earnings growth. So my guess this year, again, we're at 2 to 4%. We'll probably come in around that, maybe just light of that. For next year, 10%. The year after that, 10%. My guess is there'll be half of both of those. I think earnings are gradually grinding higher, but I don't think they're going to be anywhere near what the bottom-up estimates are in the next two years. And this all leads to sort of one of your main uh, theses right now. Theses? Theses. Theses. Okay. All right. Grammar lessons. I'll take, your, Martin, I'll Martin take Luther, your word for that. Man. Martin Luther. Yeah. That's how you remember. I was an English major. I should know stuff. But uh, Dave, you say that uh, we think equity allocation should be positioned cautiously, but we don't like the term defensives. Obviously, utilities, consumer staples are appeared very much like crowded trades, very high valuations uh, earlier this year. So how, how do you be cautious uh, with an equity portfolio now if those sort of you know textbook safe havens are kind of uh, a little risky right now? Yeah. So the, the caution really comes not from our base case, which, like I said, I think the market probably goes higher, grinds higher. We, but I don't like the risk-adjusted trade-off. I don't like the idea that... Uh, I always ask the question, uh, what happens if I'm wrong? And I usually assume that I'm wrong. <laughs> so if our, if our base case is wrong and things turn out to be better than we expect, there's some upside to the market. But again, valuations are already elevated, not exorbitant, but elevated. Profit margins are already elevated. So how much upside is there? There's probably some there, but not not an enormous amount. What about the downside? What if we're wrong and we do go into recession? It's not our base case, but it's something we've become much more worried about. If we're wrong and we do go into recession, there's far more downside than there is upside. And so that's kind of why we're cautious. When you get back to those sector plays, what I was really kind of getting at is I like cautious better than defensive because when you say defensive, people hear staples and utilities. And I always think it's really hard to be defensive by buying the most expensive thing right. in the market. Right. That's not kind of the, you know, the classic notion of margin of safety. And, and I worry that, again, this is one of the byproducts of central bank policy. You suppress rates and you make anything that has yield or, or looks stable or bond-like, you elevate its, its valuations. And I think it's a little worrisome when investors ask us, hey, should I be replacing my bond portfolios with utilities uh, because I can pick up an extra 50 basis points or 100 basis points. But you're fundamentally moving from high quality bonds, which have four or 5% vol, to equities that have even low volatility equities might be 12 to 15. You're fundamentally changing your risk profile and picking up 50 basis points to do it. That's dangerous to me. So uh, how do we look at it? Uh, Low vol equity, maybe some option selling, a return back to value perhaps. There are ways to be cautious in your equity portfolio without loading into sort of the defensive names. All right. One last thing before we get to the crazy things. Uh, Dave, and this is to put your hat on as chair of the steering committee for the Active Managers Council. 
So you're in an elevator, a short ele- elevator trip with a, a retiree who's loaded up on on passive index funds. What's what's your pitch? Uh, well, well, it's important to note that the Active Managers Council, it's an advocacy group underneath the Investment Advisors Association, but it is in no way sort of uh, anti-passive. <laughs> we're, we, we think passive is great. What we're really pushing back against is sort of this unbalanced narrative uh, that sort of active management has been vilified and we would say unjustifiably uh, been vilified. We, we think that this is a, f- a false dichotomy that's presented to investors that kind of passive is good and active is bad. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at the key arguments, and we've done some research on this, people will say, well, active ma- management hasn't worked, and they'll point to some scorecards. And we would say the results of the scorecards are very mixed. Yes, in large cap U.S. equities, it's been quite a struggle, but it's a much more mixed uh, result in, in other categories. Uh, you'll hear that active management, on average, can't outperform because of sort of this zero-sum argument. And it turns out that the zero-sum argument doesn't really apply, given the way that we measure the number of managers who outperform. The average dollar can't generate excess uh, return, but the average manager could. And then the third narrative that we push back on is this idea that even if active managers could outperform, they're really hard to pick. And we don't think that that it's a needle in the haystack exercise. There are some key uh, indicators that you can look at that will not guarantee you pick a great manager, but certainly will improve your odds. So the idea of the Active Managers Council is to is to make a more balanced narrative, but it's in no way to throw passive under the bus, which many of the council members are big fans of, in, including us. We have passive exposure. All right. Good stuff. I will say that's a little bit long for an elevator pitch. I, was I, say, think, I think we yeah. just ended Dave, up on the top floor. Dave of took us up to the building. penthouse. <laughs> Dave lives in a penthouse. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> even think he's talking to the old retiree. That's just 20 years of commissions. He's walking right by and going to me and Sarah and looking for our money. That's, that's what's going on here. <laughs> well, we're glad to have him. Uh, now for the crazy stuff. Uh, Sarah, what is the craziest thing? you ever saw in markets this week. All right. I have to give a hat tip to Vildana Hyrick, who was on the show before, because she did help me out with this one. It was just, it was pretty crazy. So I had to go with it. Um, so this is the headline of a story from the New York Post. It says, Bond King Bill Gross in postage stamp feud with Rocker <laughs> Son. So for one thing, R- now Rocker you know. Who? What, Rocker Son. Now Who's you know. That? That's Ro- his son. Oh, Rocker Son. His S-O-N. son okay. is a rocker. So now you know that Bill Gross's son um, is actually a pretty big uh, rocker. He's a musician who has produced songs for Wiz Khalifa. So that can be appreciated. Um, but he is in a fight with him over a collection of postage stamps. Um, so not exactly in I the wish market, Bill was still writing his monthly commentaries. That'd be, I'd like to read about that. On one. this, yeah. <laughs> he was writing monthly commentaries about his uh, feud with his quote-unquote rocker son. Luke, pretty good. Luke, can you top Bill no. Gross in a <laughs> I No, but I but I will give a shout out to uh, it's one of the best things I've read this week from Bloomberg's uh, Beth Stanton. And it's essentially saying, you know, what is the price of a treasury? Right. Well, it depends on whom you ask. <laughs> right. And she pointed out that at uh, three big uh, bond mutual funds had three different values for one bond. Uh, you know, the 
bond fund of America had it priced at 101.2 essentially, another fund at 101.182, another fund at 101.1758. So it's essentially showing that you know the little bit of discretion that is allowed in markets will allow you know uh, funds to, to value things differently. If I had to do something different, I'd be it's not quite in markets, but uh, Joe Weisenthal's explanation of how repo markets are a lot like uh, trying to buy marijuana when you don't have any cash on you would have been my runner-up, but not quite markets. <laughs> that one was pretty good. Dave, how about you? You seen anything crazy this week? Well, I, I think Sarah's one is pretty crazy. If, if Bill Gross is fighting tooth and nail over stamps, then we know interest rates are pretty low. <laughs> uh, not a lot of yield Value. out there. Not a lot of yield out there to find if we're fighting over stamps at this point. <laughs> was it a collection of postage stamps? Yes, or? I oh, believe oh, so. Like a Okay, not just yeah. one. Yes. He's got the most valuable collection in the world, I believe. Oh, that's he's, right. He's, that's he right. is a collector. You're right. Yeah. That's right. I remember. Uh, so one of the things that sort of crossed my terminal was uh, I think it was a Bloomberg article, and, and maybe you've discussed it. It's been in the water supply, uh, but it was announced earlier this week that uh, Facebook has entered into an agreement to buy. Uh, a firm called CTRL Labs, and you you may have seen this. Uh, what what's crazy and sort of interesting about CTRL Labs is that it's a firm that basically uses software and hardware. I think it's a bracelet, kind of a wearable, to monitor kind of the neurons and the neurological activity in your brain, and then use that to send a signal to your computer uh, and the use of an avatar. So basically, sending a signal uh, to your computer, kind of through your thought waves. That's a little crazy, but then I had to put it in the context of what Facebook is going through. Facebook on a daily basis is being dragged up to Capitol Hill uh, to deal with antitrust, privacy issues, election interference, and everything else. And they're basically going to have to go back to their same regulators and ask them for permission to buy a company that is basically leading in the space of thought control. This strikes me as Perhaps Different. a little bit worrisome. <laughs> That's some scary stuff. Yeah. yeah, and so the way that I think about it, and I, and I should put the compliance disclosure in, we don't do buy, sell, sell hold <laughs> on individual stocks. I have no idea what it means for Facebook. I don't I don't pretend to even have a Facebook account. Uh, but I do think it's, it's sort of fascinating uh, to see a company like Facebook beginning to get into sort of the realm of kind of mind control. And I don't for one second believe right now it's initially your mind controls the computer. I suspect at some point that highway will go in the other direction. I mean, and I think with, within the context of what Facebook is going through, I think it's a pretty crazy and brash move. Absolutely. I wonder if those brain signals get sent to advertisers too. You know, like, <laughs> Can you, you imagine? Wonder? Mike, Mike they do. Mike Regan wants potato chips again. <laughs> give, give him those lasers. I don't remember the name of it, but it sounds like a, I remember earlier on the show, we talked about a startup that Tesla was a part of, and they did a very similar thing. Yeah, it's a brave new world. Yes. Sure. All right. I'll do mine quickly. Uh, Credit Suisse uh, stock has had a rough week. I mean, all European bank stocks have had a rough week. T to be honest, most weeks are rough for European bank stocks. Credit Suisse, Suisse is one of the leaders on the downside. And I have to think it has something to do with this crazy story. They had a top banker who defected over to UBS. And then the guy figured out that they had hired a private detective to follow him around to make sure he wasn't poaching any of his team. <laughs> so it's turned into this big scandal. That they're worried the CEO might have to step down over it. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. Sarah, I, I think we chip in. Maybe we could get a detective to follow Luke around. I think it? we could. Yeah, see if he's really fast. I think Bloomberg would invest in it. pretty easy to follow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
You don't know what Luke's doing outside of the office. We'll get a detective to check on it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that's it for the week. I think it is. Dave Lafferty, Luke Howell, thanks so much for joining us. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest Dave Lafferty is at Lafferty Natixis. And Luke Kawa is at LJ Kawa. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.